Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we take a look at the Lord's Supper, and more importantly, an older method of preparation for that supper. It helps us battle what some have called cheap grace. You're listening to A Preparatory Exhortation by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this evening is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read uh, verses 26 through 30. That's a little bit from the actual story of the first Lord's Supper and Jesus presiding at the table with his disciples. I'm only going to read those five verses, uh, but I will be referring to other parts of the story, so if you want to check what I refer to, keep your Bible open. Here are the words of Matthew as he describes Jesus at the table. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. So not only will we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight, my sermon will be very much on the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm very much on that, that first story, that first Lord's Supper where Jesus presided with his disciples. And to get into that, I want to start by um, going into the, 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 the myths of the past. I want to evoke memory for many of you. I want to go back into the sands of time and lift up two words um, that will be very evocative, I think, for many of you of a certain age. And those two words are preparatory exhortation. Preparatory exhortation. I see some of you smiling. I see some of you perplexed. Probably if you're under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. The preparatory exhortation was one of the ways in which we guarded the sanctity of the Lord's table. When I was young, and when many of you were younger, we were pretty zealous in protecting this table. We really wanted to make sure that people who celebrated the Lord's Supper did it with the right frame of mind, that they had their hearts in the right place. We wanted to, what they call, we fenced the table. That's actually a technical term for it with theologians, liturgists. You fence the table. And we still do that today. When I say at the beginning of the service that if you are a communicant member, if you take the Lord's Supper in your own church, you're welcome to join us, I'm fencing the table. The, the, the suggestion is that if, if you're not a communicant member in your own church, you probably want to just wait until you become a communicant member before you come to the table. That's fencing the table. And we used to do that uh, much more vigorously, and we did that in a couple ways. The elders would really be rigorous to, to see who was eligible to come to the table. So, for example, in the church that I grew up in, uh, my best friend had a, a mom who was, uh, died in the world Christian Reform, but she married a Ukrainian Catholic. And he didn't want to become Christian Reformed. He liked his Catholicism, so he stayed Catholic. And the elders, um, he never took communion. Every time they took communion, he would, uh, she, his mom would take communion and his dad never would. And that was because the elders at some point had communicated to him, hey, unless you 
become Christian Reformed, you ought not to partake. And maybe you remember the other thing the elders would sometimes do is when visitors came into church, they'd meet them in the narthex, right? And they'd say, oh, are you a member of a church? And they'd take your information down and they send it to your home church to make sure that you were above board. I sometimes still get letters uh, from some of you who visited, who currently visit churches like that. So that was one way. The other way we fenced the table was with the preparatory exhortation. A week before communion was to take place, in the morning liturgy, we would read a form which reminded everyone that they ought to examine themselves so that they may come to the table in the right frame of mind. And the warning was, uh, could be pretty heavy. Um, I went back to the Blue Psalter hymnal, which still has some preparatory exhortations in it, and I found some of the verbiage. Here's some from, there were, there were several options, but this is one of the options. This is a week before communion. Let everyone consider by himself his sins and accursedness, that he may abhor himself and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leave it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death on the cross. So that's pretty heavy. That's not, that's not lighthearted stuff. Abhor yourself, accursedness. And it goes on from there to list 22 serious sins, listed them in the preparatory exhortation, that if you were guilty of these sins, you ought not to come to the table. And here's just a few of those sins. All quarrelsome persons. That's a lot of people these days. Adulterers fornicators, drunkards, covetous persons, children who are rebellious against their parents, and as a final catch-all, all those who lead offensive lies. So it's, it's a very high fence. It's a very vigorous fence. It promoted really strong self-examination. Now, reading those old forms, I realize how much things have changed. That's, that's not the spirit in which we come to the table. Nowadays, as we will sing later in the service, we come not just with contrition, there's still contrition, self-examination, but we come with joy, we come with celebration, we recognize that this is also the wedding feast of the Lamb, this is the feast of our liberation of the Passover Lamb, as well as a feast of contrition. So the Spirit is, is quite joyful. And mostly I'm glad that the spirit of our celebrations have changed. I like the joy I'm glad that we're not so morose. Honestly, under some of those old preparatory exhortations, when you read them, you realize why in some churches hardly anyone comes forward for communion. So mostly I'm glad for the changes. But if I'm completely honest, sometimes I worry. Sometimes I wonder, when we gave up the preparatory exhortation and all the rigor that was involved in that ritual, did we give up one of the main ways in which we really examined our sin. One of the practices that forced us to look into our hearts, forced us to go down the road of sanctification. Is this just another way in which the Christian Reformed Church is becoming a little less morally serious? Is this just another sign of slide? It's an important question. And a look at the first Lord's Supper and the way Jesus celebrated it may help us answer that question, or address it at least. 
As I looked over the story again this week, I was struck by the people whom Jesus served and who he offered his bloody body and blood. Who was allowed at the table? Well, the 12 disciples, including Judas. When Jesus held up the cup and said, drink of it all of you, that included Judas. Judas was communed at the first communion. And he was communed, let us note, if you go right back before our passage, right after Jesus has confronted him and makes it very clear that he knows exactly what Judas is going to do. Jesus communes Judas even though he knows he's about to be betrayed. So in one of the most remarkable exchanges in Scripture, one moment he's looking Judas in the eye and saying, I know you're going to betray me. And the next moment he's saying, this is my body. Judas is not the only troublesome guest at the table that night. Peter has his own issues. He won't betray Jesus, but he will deny him. He'll cast Jesus aside just to save his own skin. And that after everything Jesus has done for him. And Jesus knows Peter's going to do that too. Confronts Peter right after this passage and says, Peter, I know exactly what you're going to do. And still, Jesus gives his body and blood to Peter. And Jesus also knows, verse 31, that all the other disciples are going to abandon him as well. He knows that they will become like uh, sheep without a shepherd. They will scatter. And nevertheless, Jesus includes all of those wayward disciples who are about to betray him, not betray him, but abandon him and flee. He includes them in that celebration. Luke If you read Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, he complicates the picture even more because he says that he records, he remembers that at the table, right after Jesus says, wash their feet, and just before he's about to give them communion, no wait, just after he gives them communion, they start arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So right after Jesus has done this servant thing and communion, they they start this argument about who's going to be vice president in Jesus' administration. They absolutely don't get it. So here's what the celebration looked like from Jesus' perspective. A table full of people who he spent three years with, who clearly don't yet understand anything that he's done, all of them who are going to desert, one is going to betray, one is going to deny. Many normal people would get up from a table like that and leave. Jesus sits and says, this is my body, this is my blood for you. Grace flows so deep at that first table. Now, applying this to our communion, when I say this, maybe you think you know where I'm going. Maybe you think, oh, well, then communion should be open. I mean, if these guys can come to the table, how can we deny communion from anyone? If Judas can get communion, everyone should be allowed. We should have open communion, and some churches do, but not so fast. Grace flows thick, at that first Lord's Supper, but so does confrontation. All those people Jesus communes, he also confronts. Face to face, he confronts Judas and says, I know what you're going to do. He confronts Peter and says, you're going to abandon me. He tells all the disciples they're going to abandon him. Jesus is very direct about sin. Jesus is not soft on sin here. He cares enough about it to confront and furthermore, to pay the price for it. Communing these sinners at this table 
is going to cost Jesus an enormous amount. It's going to cost him everything. So it's, there's no softness on sin here. Our attitude at this table cannot be, come to the table, it's, it's, it's no big deal. See, they, they serve Judas, they serve Peter, you're fine. To say that would be an example of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Germany before the Second World War, famously came at German Christians because he felt they were partaking in all the grace of the supper and all the grace of the church, but they weren't working at sanctification at all. They were getting all the gifts, but they weren't taking on any of the responsibility, and he called that cheap grace. It's an attitude that won't do. Jesus did not die on the cross to make our life easy or convenient. He died to make us holy. The grace flows free and thick so that we will be changed. And that's why when people just take the grace but don't take on the responsibility, that's why Paul later on in 1 Corinthians 10 says, those who eat and drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner are guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. He's concerned that people are eating it with cheap grace. So you got these two forces at that first supper pulling in different directions. This amazing grace, right? Still unbelievable that all of them were communed. And then this very serious reckoning with sin that Jesus does in this face-to-face confrontation. How do we think of this? Well, this cheap grace thing is hard to understand. Let me try to explain it with an analogy. One of the most famous things that Karl Barth ever said uh, was also one of the simplest things that Karl Barth ever said. Karl Barth is the great German theologian uh, of the 20th century. And some of you heard this story. Karl Barth wrote something called The Church Dogmatics. It's like 20 volumes. It's extremely hard. He He lectured everywhere. The most famous theologian, arguably, of the 20th century. Towards the end of his career, he was at some conference, he gave a a speech, and someone stood up to ask during the question time, Dr. Bard, if you had to sum up all of Christian theology and everything you've learned in one sentence, what would that sentence be? And Bart said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it was wonderful, right? That's wonderful, coming from a guy who spent all that time, such a learned guy, To say, even I, with all my learning, am just a child. That faith for me is just this this small thing. I'm, I'm like a child and I understand nothing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So we love that statement in that story. But now take that same statement and put it in a different context. Imagine a a freshman at Calvin University in her religion and theology class. And she's at college, and she just wants to have a good time. She does not want to study. She wants to spend the weekends having a good time with her friends. And she's in a religion and a theology class. She doesn't pay attention. She doesn't take notes. She doesn't do the reading. Midterm comes. She opens her blue book and writes, it's all summed up by Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the same statement, isn't it? This time it's received slightly different. Karl Barth has tried. He's studied as hard as he can. So after all the learning and then taking his responsibilities as a scholar seriously, for him to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, that feels like grace. For this other person, this freshman girl, 
It's cheap grace. She's just trying to get away with something. So to put it in communion terms, Bart partakes of that statement properly. He's done the work. And so when he says it, it has truth and depth. The other person, that young girl, has used that statement in an unworthy manner. And she has eating and drinking judgment to herself. And her professor will almost certainly give her a failing grade. That's cheap grace. How does that translate to us here in the supper we're about to share? Grace flows deep here, no matter who you are or what you've done or what's happened to you this week. Whatever's happened to you, whatever you've done in your past, Christ opens his arms to you and offers you grace and love and forgiveness at this table. And nothing can stop us, stop you from partaking. I mean, I know I fenced the table, but honestly, we're not checking credentials as you come forward. We're not going to slap your hand away. No elder is going to tackle you if you take the bread and the wine and partake. But understand this if you do. And this is true for all of us. The bread that you put in your mouth and the wine that will go there with it is so costly. And if you eat and drink of it in a flippant way, it's like Jesus, you are slapping Jesus in the face all over again. That you are treating his sacrifice with contempt. But if you want a new life, if you're truly sorry for your sins, if you want things to be different in here, if you want to change and come forward, eat that bread, Drink the cup. I invite you, and more importantly, Jesus invites you. And he says to you, take, eat, remember, and believe, because Christ died for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of this supper. In the depth of its grace and in, and, and in the intensity of its seriousness, Lord, both those things. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for this bread and this wine. We take it again. May it give us strength for our journey and may it continue to push us down the road of sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.